Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Well, today I'm speaking with Jack Goldstone. Jack is a sociologist and a professor of public policy at George Mason University. And he's one of the world experts on revolutions and the social and political and economic variables that produce them. He focuses a lot on economic growth in a global economy and on the effects of population change on economic growth and how all this feeds into the causes and outcomes of revolutions. And I must say, I was very impressed with how clearly he frames these issues. And we talk about many of the relevant variables here, inequality of various kinds, wealth inequality included, failures of social mobility, changes we might make to the tax code, new norms around social responsibility that we clearly need. I probably don't have to remind you that a few short weeks ago, we witnessed the capital stormed by a mob whose diverse interests and commitments certainly included an intent to overthrow the government of the United States. So talking about the prospect of revolution at this point in American history doesn't seem as paranoid as it otherwise might. And I'm convinced that we really need to keep all of the trends that are leading to this level of political instability and hyperpartisanship in view. And this conversation is an excellent place to start. So now without further delay, I bring you Jack Goldstone. I am here with Jack Goldstone. Jack, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Good to talk to you. So um, before we dive into the, the matter at hand, how do you summarize your background? What are your What's been your professional and academic focus? Well, academics would call me a sociologist, but my study is long-term social change. I've looked at revolutions and social protests and changes of regime and government from about 1500 to the present. And this uh, gives you an expertise that seems <laughs> excruciatingly relevant uh, at the current moment in American life, uh, really globally it seems relevant, but I think I want to focus on, on uh, our own country here. Well, we can go wherever, wherever in the world you like. I'm happy to tra travel. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I've noticed that in your work. Maybe we should start at least um, acknowledging the global nature of the phenomenon we're going to talk about, and then, then we can talk about the American scene specifically. But we, we've seen that there's been a rise of populism and anti-globalism, nativism. There are many nouns that intersect. There's a loss of trust in institutions. What do we know about the sources of this kind of political instability and loss of social cohesion generally? What are the kinds of variables you think about when you try to understand these trends? Sure. Well, let me give you a, a general and then circle around to what's happening in the globe today. In general, across the centuries, there's a pretty persistent pattern, and it goes back to some of the wisdom that Roman leaders shared among themselves. And that is, when you work for honor and the richest and most powerful members of society 
try to enrich and make their society as a whole stronger, the society flourishes. On the other hand, when the rich and powerful simply try to protect and extend their own wealth at the expense of others, the society sooner or later collapses. So that's the general picture. And you might say, well, elites know that. Why would they do that? Uh, the answer is, when a country gets rich and elites are in competition with each other, they often fall back on just kind of keeping score with how they do compared to their peers. And they think, well, the rest of society will just go on. It's not my problem, not my issue. And so then you get people trying to accumulate more and more wealth to protect it from taxation and to uh, prevent public services from being fully funded. And all of that leads to the rest of society growing more and more angry because they have a sense that they're falling behind, they're being left out, the government no longer is watching out for them, and so they turn against it. They turn against the government, they turn against the elites, they get angry, and they look for ways to let that anger out, usually joining some radical or extremist movements. So that, that was a wonderful summary of, of a very depressing landscape. To bring it to the U.S. context here, how much do you view Trump uh, and the four years we've just experienced as a, a mere symptom of these underlying problems? And the problems themselves were evident in 2015 and before. And how much do you view him as a, an exacerbator or cause of these problems? Well, he's certainly an exacerbator. He's not the underlying cause. And in fact, the underlying cause, and this is why it's a global phenomenon, has more to do with the changes in technology and society that we've seen in the last 30 years. We've had two things happen. One is that the big post-World War II generations, what we call the baby boom in this country, post-war post -war surges elsewhere, they came of age in a time when uh, manual labor was the key to the economy. People made things, they provided services, they got wealthy, or at least made stable, good incomes doing that. And there was respect for people who made things and built things and did things with their hands. But as the baby boom got older, they found the rug pulled out from under them. The economy started to shift in the direction of finance, high finance, uh, loans, credit, management of uh, securities grew bigger and bigger from like 5% of the economy to 15% of the economy. And the other thing that grew, of course, is the digital economy, which we're all familiar with and which we all enjoy. But the digital economy doesn't employ that many people. And it certainly doesn't give its uh, rewards and respect to people doing manual labor. Mm. And so for the baby boomers, the life that they expected, the respect, the dignity that they had in work, uh, they find is disappearing. Their communities are hurt by it. The prospects for their children, if they can't get into university, which is increasingly expensive and difficult, have diminished. So we've seen a slowdown in social mobility. At the same time, we've seen a reduction in the life quality and life prospects for those, especially in kind of the smaller towns, rural areas that were the farming, manufacturing heartland. Now, the big metro areas have continued to thrive. But the big metro areas have their own issues. They tend to be very diverse. They have to deal with the issues of racial justice, discrimination, uh, managing diversity. 
And that's, that's another source of anger for those who feel that as immigrants, perhaps, or as people of color, society doesn't grant them dignity and respect either. And so you have both on the left and the right, these kind of widespread feelings that, wait a minute, all the rewards of society seem to be going to a very small group. And uh, they also seem to be taking over all the institutions and they seem to be rigging everything in, in their favor. And uh, what's going to become of us? We need someone to fight back against everything being rigged. And that leads to the attraction of kind of the populist strong man who says, I alone can fix it. I can be your champion. And produces really an almost uh, quasi-religious devotion to someone who presents themselves as a savior, as a national symbol of regeneration. Now, Donald Trump came along and with all the skills of a pro-wrestling television celebrity, donned the mantle of hero and was very successful in that. But of course, he had counterparts in other countries. Bolsonaro in Brazil, Duterte in the Philippines, Erdogan in Turkey, Boris Johnson and uh, the Brexit movement in Mm. the United Kingdom. Uh, You know, the details vary, but in each case, it's not been the leading edge economically of the society that's been driving change. It's been those who feel frustrated that they are not benefiting as much as those leading edge elites that they see. Mm. I think you wrote in a piece that you published with Peter Turchin that, um, and I'm quoting you, inequality and polarization have not been this high since the 19th century. I I think we're probably going to want to focus on wealth inequality, but what are the important measures of inequality? Can you put some numbers to this in, in the U.S.? And is there anything other than wealth inequality that is a, a major driver of, of this problem? Well, there certainly are many inequalities besides just inequality of wealth. And inequality of wealth is probably not the most troubling. Oh, interesting. Uh, so that's great, because that, my assumption coming <laughs> into this conversation is that wealth inequality is really the, the elephant in every room now. And um, so, yeah, please fill in the gaps in my knowledge here. Okay, look, we've been through this before. We had the railroad robber barons, we had the Rockefellers and the Carnegies build up huge amounts of wealth. But when they did so, other parts of society were benefiting as well. That is, the railroads and the oil industries employed lots of, money, uh, lots of workers and gave them opportunities. What we've had in the last 30 years with the rise of finance and digital fortunes is the rich getting richer while everyone else stagnates or grows very slowly indeed. And it's more the differences in opportunity, in social mobility, in access to what I would call middle-class amenities, a safe neighborhood, good schools for your children, medical care, the ability to have a varied diet. Those things have, even though the price of a color TV has gone way down, the price of a new automobile has gone way down, the things that are essential to quality of family life remain competitive and therefore expensive. And in many settings, increasingly beyond the reach, both of young people and people who don't have college degree professional positions. Now, wealth inequality harms society if those who are wealthy use that to get control of government policy and steer that wealth in ways that benefits themselves. 
if they are generous with the wealth and use it to endow museums, universities, to invest in new businesses, to rehabilitate districts, then that's fine. That's good for society. So a lot of it has to do with how wealth is deployed and how income and opportunities are distributed. And it's the fact that the, the use of private wealth and the distribution of opportunities really seems to have diminished for large portions of the population, maybe 30 to 50 percent in many of the advanced Western countries. And so you have a lot of that anger, you know, the, the yellow vests in, in France, uh, people in uh, Chile who rioted against their government, people in Brazil who rioted at the cost of bus fare going up. These are people who feel like they're just getting by and every imposition upon them is increasingly pushing them over the edge. So fundamental psychological fact here, which is certainly an unhappy one, is that per people's personal judgments of well-being are generally comparative. So that even if by any absolute measure, everyone was getting better off, if the difference between the the most fortunate and the least fortunate is continuing to widen, then that is seen as a, a source of real grievance and frustration, even if everyone, you know, you know, or virtually everyone has a smartphone in their pocket that not even the president of the United States could have managed to get 30 years ago. <laughs> On some level, we seem to be doomed to dissatisfaction no matter how good things get for everyone if things are getting better and better and better faster for a subset of the population. I mean, at least that, it seems like something like that structure is well, part, part of our legacy a, code. <laughs> that's a pessimistic way of looking at it. Yes, pe there's always envy. People always feel down and out if they see others doing better than themselves. But people compare themselves mainly to other people they encounter in their own life. So if you're living in a subdivision or an urban neighborhood, you don't really care whether the guy living on the 70th floor of a penthouse has a gold bathtub or a porcelain bathtub. You don't care whether he's keeping an 80-foot yacht in the harbor or a 50-foot yacht. Those things aren't relevant to you. What you care about is whether you're going to be able to move into a better house when you get married with room for your kids, whether the people down the block or on just the other side of town who you see are somehow able to afford things that you can't afford anymore that you thought you or your parents could afford. So you're right. There's always a degree of comparing ourselves to others. But it doesn't have to be the kind of, well, there will always be people richer than me, so I'm always going to be unhappy. That's not how people are. As long as people feel that they're getting better, that they're getting ahead in their own lives, and that the progress that they're making is reasonable compared to most of the people they see immediately around them, they're usually quite pleased. Most people are, are not quite as prone to torment themselves with the envy of the rich as you might think. Otherwise, there wouldn't be uh, as much of a happy market for watching all those tales of the rich and famous. Those are like fairy tales mm -hmm. that people hope will come true, but they don't actually hurt people's feelings. What hurts is if in their day-to-day -day lives they feel stuck, if they feel that they can't live the way that their parents did or that they expected to do 10, 20 years ago, and they've been working hard to get ahead, and it just hasn't happened. So the circle of comparison is tighter than I 
suggested there, but it, it seems like this structure travels with us at every level of success in society. So you have billionaires who currently feel like they they haven't made it financially because they can compare themselves to Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. Uh, and you have people who have, you know, tens of millions of dollars who feel poor by reference to billionaires. And there's something insidious about this because, I mean, as you say, if they were deploying their wealth in extremely pro-social and generous ways, it wouldn't represent a, a kind of toxic capture of resources. But I think if people feel they haven't made it, even when they have a billion dollars on some level, and they're keeping score with reference to the people who, who have 10 or a hundredfold more resources than they do, it either you know erodes good norms we used to have. I mean, I'm not, you, know, you can educate me on this point. I'm not sure how much we used to have them, or at least it prevents the formation of norms that we should have, which is people should see that, that one of the main reasons to be wealthy is to be able to help other people and produce the kind of society that we all want to live in, right? And not to allow that kind of abundance to become just a, you know, a magnifying glass for the, the light of self-concern to be even more concentrated. At some point, I mean, if you... No, you, you've got it. You know, I think, you know, if we think about the elites having become more cosmopolitan and traveling to the same conferences and the same ritzy resorts and really being cut off in some ways from their society in which they grew up, that's a very unfortunate thing. Not that long ago, the rich might have lived in the fanciest part of town, but they attended public festivals and they attended church in the same town and in some of the same buildings and institutions as the other people who lived in that community. And the way the rich wanted to be remembered was as benefactors, as generous, whatever they were in their private lives, mm. in their public lives, they wanted to be seen as people who were pillars of the community. And that phrase, you know, the pillar of the community seems to have gone out of fashion. Uh, we used to talk about it being, you know, harder for a rich man to enter heaven, right, than, to go, than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. The religious idea was virtue and honor were to be found in helping your fellow men. And today, I think Joe Biden actually believes in the ideal of public service. He is more interested in making 350 million Americans better off than making himself better off. That has diminishing returns for him, but he will go to his grave delightfully uh, happy if he has made all Americans better off. Now, that's an old school ideal. I'm glad it's back in the presidency in the United States, and I hope it can spread. But that's what successful societies, frankly, rely on. If the richest and most powerful turn their backs on public welfare, then democracy doesn't make sense for people anymore because why should they vote for a government that ignores them and that concentrates its benefits on the rich? So if we want to restore and rejuvenate democracy, we need governments that function to provide broad general benefits again, not that simply exist to help those who have the best positions or the most capital get even further ahead. Well, it's interesting. It seems that there's a tension here because, it, so in my lexicon, personally, cosmopolitanism 
is not a pejorative term. To think of oneself more and more as a citizen of the world, uh, you know, who's just open to the best ideas, you know, whatever their provenance, and whose circle of moral concern has extended beyond the borders of one's country to encompass all of civilization, right? And, and to feel that we should be prioritizing certainly some of our generosity, much of our generosity, along the lines of greatest need, right? So to, to care about what's happening, you know, in some beleaguered place in sub-Saharan Africa is not a, a misappropriation of one's compassion. It's in, in fact, it's just a recognition of, you know, one should be more moved than one tends to be by the greatest need and, and kind of accidents of geographic distance are just that. They don't actually have ethical import, even though they, they feel they do. And, you know, if you tell me my my neighbor's daughter fell down a well, well, then it's going to occupy all of my attention. And you tell me that there's a genocide raging in Sudan or some other place, and hundreds of thousands of children, just like my neighbor's daughter, have been killed. You know, I, I'm going to find that so boring that I'm going to switch the channel when it appears on the evening news. Right. So that that seems like a bug in our code rather than a feature. So it just it seems like much of what you seem to have just derided or at least flagged as a source of political liability as cosmopolitanism is just a an acknowledgement that so many of our problems are global now and that no no one nation and so many of our opportunities are global, right? It's just that, you know, we are we're struggling to build a global civilization that actually works. And so our, our thinking on, on many points should be global. And, and, and it's, it's actually all to the good that we wind up going to conferences where people from all over the world bring their best ideas and, and network. And yet, one externality of that trend, it sounds like, is the complete erosion or near-complete erosion of the very principles that would make a single country like our own work as a democracy. Well, I, I clearly hit a nerve here. Let me yeah. try and talk about cosmopolitanism in a way that avoids, I hope, some of these uh, concerns about where do you do the most good. If you have a family and you're living in a house, and as you say, your neighbor's daughter fell down a well, well, of course, you're, you're going to go help your neighbor and rescue the daughter. That's an imperative to do. On the other hand, let's say you hear that someone all across town, their daughter fell in a well, and you certainly would like to help if you didn't have any other priorities at home. But if your own daughter is upstairs sick with a fever and needs to be cared for, maybe she's just gotten out of surgery or she has a very high fever, you're not going to leave your own daughter who is sick to go help someone else, even if they need help, until your own house is in order. Now, when you asked me about different types of inequality, I said I wasn't focused on wealth. Let me talk about one that's really down to earth, and that is life expectancy, how long people live. America, along with the United Kingdom, was one of the only rich countries in the world where life expectancy started going down between 2015 and 2018. We've never had that in mm. our history. It indicates that our society, was suffering from illness. It was an illness of opioid addiction, 
and other deaths of despair, alcoholism, suicide. Now, I do think it's important. We have one planet, we have one climate, we all have to pitch in. I contribute money to medical charities overseas as well as to hospitals here at home because you're right, it is important to recognize we're all part of a global community. But we cannot neglect people who are really suffering, who are losing years of life here that they shouldn't be losing. And as I say, that was going on uh, even before Trump was elected. It's part of the reason I think he was elected. You can look at the vote for Trump against counties that had declines in life expectancy in the prior few years, and it's a very close match. It's one of the best predictors of uh, Trump kind mm. of voting as a protest because you're unhappy with conditions in your community and your life. So when I say cosmopolitanism is a problem, it's only if people say that they think their country, the United States, is fine and uh, we can you know, look beyond that. You can look beyond your own country, but not if it blinds you to what's going on right in your own home. And I think this is something we missed. It really wasn't until Anne Case and Angus Deaton published their research calling attention to the fact that life expectancy had started to go down that it became an issue for policymakers and for the media. Mm. It, it went on for years quietly in communities across America without being appreciated. But we could have seen the precursors of it, I believe, by looking at changes in the distribution of income, in the distribution of opportunity and mobility, in what was happening to the economic base of many rural and small-town communities. So by all means, be a cosmopolitan, but that also means get to know parts of your own country that you might not know as well. Uh, we talk about flyover and coastal elites. Mm -hmm. I find that kind of demeaning. Uh, I spend a lot of time when I was a kid taking buses across the country, listening to country western music. I still like to drive when I can from the east coast to the west and see this big, beautiful country in between and get to know the people there. Because th those are the people, at the end of the day, whose choices, as long as we live in a democracy, those are the people's whose voices and whose choices will make a difference just as much as mine. And we have to come together and find things that will make everyone better off if we're going to keep democracy going. Otherwise, we get into these historical cycles of selfish elites, angry popular groups, and the rise of populist leaders, demagogues, and mass protest. And it gets violent, it gets ugly, and we've seen that. We need to change direction. So I, I guess... Where I want to land here in this conversation is with some sense of what we think we should do going forward. I mean, it seems like we have you know massive problems to solve, many of which are only exacerbating the, the problem we're talking about. I mean, you know, you know, we have to deal with the COVID pandemic, obviously, but the COVID pandemic has has ramified and worsened various forms of inequality in our society. Certainly, wealth is one. And I guess, and we've we've begun this conversation framing it in terms of of what the most fortunate people decide to do. Essentially, you know, we've put it in terms of philanthropy and charity. But really, the other piece here is is our tax code and the willingness or disinclination of rich people to pay what we might think is their fair share or or more in taxes. Uh, and the degree to which they're going to fight any attempt to raise taxes. How do you view 
taxation here and and any specific strategies we might use to redistribute wealth. Here's what I think the psychological status quo is here among among fortunate, wealthy people at every level. There's a sense that you know rather often the government is terrible at what it attempts to do. Right? There's a basic cynicism that the government can ever do anything, especially well, and therefore you tend to encounter rich people who think that there's some that this offers some argument for not paying more in taxes because the money will be wasted or you know spent on some boondoggle whereas in my view that it's really just that's an argument for better governance by all means point out all the ways in which government fails and is wasteful but that's not an argument at where you want to set the tax code it's a, it's an argument for better government but there is a there's a sense that you know taxes are already too high you run into this with disconcerting frequency among rich people and therefore it's only rational to want to decide to give the money to the most effective causes oneself rather than have the government waste it so this is this explains a bias for philanthropy over taxation but as we know people aren't you know all that generous when they don't have to be or at least most of them are not and so <laughs> so the amount that people actually give away even when it's well publicized is a you know a rounding error on a rounding error of their wealth uh, rather often, and it's certainly not what they would be obliged to give away if we uh, raised taxes on them. So, uh, how do you view taxation here? And, and and you know, feel free to get into any specific ideas about how to change our tax code. Thank you for that invitation. Yeah. <laughs> Most people would like to tear up the existing tax code and start over, but let let me say. From the point of view of my model, there are actually three things that need to be kept in mind as we try and pull our society back from the edge of extreme conflict and decay. One is restoring people's trust that government can function and can solve problems. The days when we looked to government to provide the interstate highway system, to build beautiful airports, to build subways to take us to work, to provide law and order, to provide for the national defense to send rockets to the moon, to develop new cures for disease. All of these things we trusted government to do reasonably well, and we thought they were prudent investments for the future. But as you say, too many people now think that any dollar spent by government is wasted, and therefore even a dollar spent on an ultra-premium whiskey for one person's consumption is still better than letting that money be wasted by the government. So that philosophy has to change. We have to say, look, there are legitimate things that government can do. And you know what? When there's a disaster, when even a rich person's land gets flooded or a tornado comes, they come to the government and say, uh, what about restoring my property? What about fixing this? And so on. So government has to be seen as having a valid role in a complex, wealthy society. There are big problems. COVID-19, obviously, a huge one that's hitting us in the face. But so too is climate change as the Midwest is flooding and the California is burning and the Gulf Coast is being battered by repeated powerful hurricanes. We can't allow those things to double or triple and expect that quality of life will go on. So you're right. People have to recover a trust that government is worth funding. Otherwise, everyone fights taxation. 
The second thing is that elites have to work together to find some common ground in what needs to be done to strengthen and improve society, as opposed to just being in competing camps saying, this is what our group needs to do, and we don't want you to be involved, and vice versa. If you have Republicans and Democrats or Tories and socialists, whatever your divisions are, if instead of saying, yes, of course we have differences, we're human beings, but because we're human, we have some common needs and interests and we have to work hard to find them. If you put that task aside and just say, I want my group to win, we go back on the path toward, I'm not going to raise anyone's taxes because you might spend them on things that you want. And I think that's awful. And the other group will say, well, we're not going to raise taxes because you might spend it on things that you want. Instead of saying, let's have an agenda for things that we agree we need, and then find a level of taxation that allows us to accomplish what is necessary. So you need to have government that's trusted. You need to have elites that work together. And then the third thing is you need people to feel the system is fair, that the taxes that they pay are not unfair compared to the taxes that others, especially the rich, pay. I mean, one of the big problems we have with the tax system now is not the rate of taxation, but the fact that so many assets and so much income escapes taxation altogether. It's in offshore LLCs. Hmm. It's in real estate trusts. It's in exempt inheritance trusts. All of these things make the system unfair and give people a general hatred of taxation as just something else that's rigged. So we need to go back to fair enforcement, clear and understandable laws, and a system that people believe in. Well, let's take the first piece. What do you think we can do? Because there's a kind of perverse, self-fulfilling aspect to this. What, what can we do to increase trust in government? You know, there really is a pervasive sense that virtually anything that can be handled by the private sector is better accomplished in the private sector. There are endless numbers of invidious comparisons between private businesses that have to function by the constraints of a market and the government you know, simulacrums of those businesses, right? So you compare, you know, FedEx to the post office, say, or you know, any, right. any business you've ever had to deal with to the DMV, right? It's like, so it's just, we, we, <laughs> there's a sense that throwing more money at it from the government side just gets you a business that, you know, no one would ever direct their, their money at if they had a choice. And so there's that kind of cynicism. How do you see us rebooting from where we currently are to a time where it would just be expected that if the government sets itself to a specific task, whether it's a space program or a public health emergency, it's going to do a, a wonderful job at that task because many of the best people are involved and it's all well-funded and it's, it's got its priorities straight and it's not captured by endless layers of bureaucrats who don't understand how the world works. How do we get to something like daylight here? You need a few big wins. I applaud President Joe Biden for making COVID-19 treatment and mitigation his first priority. This is clearly a job that private industry can develop vaccines. They're not going to distribute them. So getting vaccines into people's arms, making them safe, is a perfect example of the type of thing public health has been doing under government since the 19th century. 
And if we have a big success, I think it'll be applauded and will go a long way to making people say, you know, I'm glad the government was on the job. Now, if the government, as under Donald Trump, says, well, you know, government can't do things, not really our responsibility, we'll just encourage private firms to make the um, vaccine, and then we'll let people figure out how to get it, that's a disaster. That's what we're living through now. That's why yeah. even though the vaccines became available last fall, fewer than 5% of Americans have benefited from them. So we need government programs that are visible and that work. And it's not as rare as you think. People love Social Security. They fought bitterly against efforts to privatize it. Sometimes mm. people don't realize it's a government program. They tell government, you know, keep your hands off my Social Security. It's mine. Okay. But it came to you and still does come to you through your, through your government. Your local government provides police protection, provides uh, fire protection. Your local government provides public schools. America has always been attached to private schools. I'm sorry, to public schools. And the rich who feel, hey, you know, I can send my kids to private school, you know. There tends to be a kind of let them eat cake view. That is, if you're wealthy enough, you can have beautiful private property. You don't need public parks. Uh, you can afford private schools. You don't need to pay for public schools for everybody else. Uh, you can afford private concierge medicine. You don't need to worry about public health. And that kind of let them eat cake goes to what happened in Iran in the 1970s, where you had such terrible traffic congestion that people couldn't get to work. And instead of building more roads, the Shah's son was quoted as saying, look, if people are unhappy with traffic congestion, you know, let them make some money and buy helicopters. Mm. That's the attitude that led to a revolution. Now, we're not as extreme there. But that's the end point of where elite selfishness and lack of understanding and empathy leads. If leaders have empathy for people, if they really do work to make government benefit, not just this interest group or that particular minority, but really help all Americans where all Americans need it, like with public health care, like public education, then we get back to people seeing government as a good thing, an important part of society. Yeah, I mean, this is something I'm I'm really quite worried about now. I've been I've been worried about this general topic at least since 2009. But oh, that's good for you. Yeah, but 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 we should uh, be. But under COVID, it, it's just I guess the specific case that I find alarming. You know, and I'm not alone here. Is what is what we've seen in California with the the flight of many people in tech to other states that just by coincidence, don't have income tax, right? So there's a, many people are going to Texas and Florida. And it's, it's an unimpeachably rational decision if your concern is to make an immediate change in, one, in your own quality of life and to have it, have it make sense on paper, right? You know, if, if you're going to be essentially paid millions of dollars a year to live in another city that you like just as well as you liked San Francisco before it was inundated with crime and homelessness, well, then why not do that? Why not move to Austin or, or Miami? It makes sense on every level. And yet, it's part of the very trend you sketched out in the beginning of this conversation. I mean, it's a mini version of cosmopolitanism, the fact that you were also deracinated that you know any nice city will do. We're knowledge workers. We can work from anywhere. And COVID has really 
delivered that lesson to everyone who was available to it. So that what we're, what we're witnessing is just a flight of some of the most productive people in our society and the corresponding tax base to other states that have a different tax code. Not to get bogged down on this specific case, but I'm wondering what you think California should do in this case, because what we're, what we're suffering from here is just the fact that we have a tax system that can be gamed simply by crossing a border, and the barrier to doing that is, is quite a bit lower than leaving the, the United States would be, and therefore many, many people are doing it. Do you have a, any ideas for what California should do in light of what's happening? I grew up in California at a very different time, before the tech moguls had taken over, when Cupertino was a place you went to go buy bicycle parts because they had the best bicycle shop in the Bay Area. California right now is doing well. Once again, the state coffers are full because the tax system depends a lot on capital gains and the stock market booming is great for California's budget. So in a sense, uh, people don't need to worry too much about that. California's taxes are more focused on the gains of the ultra-wealthy than most other systems. And you say, well, why don't the ultra-wealthy leave? Well, when they retire, sure, it's good to go to low-tax states. But while you're growing up and developing an industry and you want to be able to tap the best engineers and the engineers want to live in, in beautiful places, California still has the best pool of talent, has the best concentrations of venture capital who understand tech and offers an unmatched quality of life for those who, who wanted to be there. Now, you say, well, well, people can take their companies to Austin. That's true. And it's good that a lot of them have done so, because if you over-concentrate everything in one area, it's not good for America as a whole. But if everybody moves to Austin, as they have, and the property prices in Austin start to shoot up, as they have, and they're not willing to pay the taxes that's necessary to maintain a larger, more complex, more diverse community, that community is going to deteriorate too. My, my brother-in-law lives in Austin, and I've seen neighborhoods in Austin go through a surprising decline because they lose their diversity as people move out because there's no affordable housing in those neighborhoods. Some of the funky stores that gave Austin its character can't pay the rents anymore. It's necessary to have affordable housing, support for small business, support for opportunity for people who are not tech moguls in order to make a community work. I mean, you can go to the extreme and say, why not be like the Kushners and buy property on a private island in Florida where no one can bother you, no one can get near you? Well, that works for a few people. But in other places, you still need to have medical services. You, you want to have restaurants. You want to have cafes. You want to have theaters. You want to be able to go out and enjoy life and not just cocoon strictly in, in your own luxurious mansion. If you want to enjoy the benefits of, of city life, to go out to a comedy show and be entertained, you need a city that works. And I'll agree that San Francisco's done a terrible job with homelessness. They're urban planning issues that go way back there. I was born and raised in San Francisco. I'm not always thrilled with uh, when I go back and walk around downtown and see, you know, needles and homeless. And they need more public investment, not less. But I don't think that, you know, sometimes said they've done experiments. Economists have actually tested this out. Raising taxes doesn't drive away 
the wealthy. It tends to drive away some of those who are retired and want to spend and accumulate their wealth after careers. But people who want to start a business, people who are building a business, people who want to list their business on the stock market, they want to be where the action is. And they'll pay higher taxes if that involves having higher profits and greater business success because they are where they need to be. So I think you don't have an issue saying, oh, everyone's going to run to Idaho. <laughs> I like Idaho. People mm -hmm. ski in Idaho. It's a good place for second homes. But San Francisco and Los Angeles, they're losing people because of COVID. They're not losing their economic motor just yet. Well, that's interesting. I, I, you know, I think we may have slightly different views of this. And um, I certainly hope you're right. But I, I just, this is anecdote, but it's anecdote that is is looking increasingly expensive. I mean, I, you know, I said this on a previous podcast, but literally from just people I know in my network, you know, I can account for probably hundreds of millions of dollars in the tax base evaporating in California just from the people I know who have moved who or are moving to Austin and well, I'd be Miami. glad if property prices in San Francisco and Los Angeles came down a bit, because I wouldn't mind retiring there someday. But property prices in those markets are still sky high. It's not like so much wealth has left that these nice, expensive Knob Hill apartments are going begging. That's mm. not where we are. It's true that people are taking hundreds of millions of dollars and going to you know, Nevada, going to Texas. That's part of the normal churn. And remember that economic growth in this country does not come mainly from large companies. You know, the stock of Amazon and uh, Microsoft has gone sky high, but the number of jobs that they contribute to the economy is not as large as those of the next small startup, the biotechs, the, mm. uh, you know, new uh, next dimension 5G network people. The companies that are penny and dollar stocks now that will become the Amazons and Microsofts of the future, those are the companies that are really driving the growth. Those are the ones that you want to capture. The ones that are kind of mature, large companies, you know, they'll pay their property taxes, they'll pay their income or capital gains taxes, as long as they do business in the state, but they do business all around the world. Hmm. So they're already trying to move their tax exposure to low tax regions anyway. You know, uh, Apple, again, I talk about fairness in the system. Apple essentially gave all of its intellectual property assets to Ireland because Ireland has a lower business tax rate. Mm. And so they claim all of their intellectual property profits, which is the largest part of their profits, on Ireland. And they don't pay U.S. taxes on that. They pay U.S. taxes on the uh, products they sell in Apple stores and the rent for their real estate. But that's not really uh, where the big money lies. So simply sorting out the existing degree of tax evasion. Now, the thing is, the tax system as a whole is filled with all kinds of crazy, irrational stuff. There's no reason that hedge fund managers should pay 15% of their profits because they can classify it as capital gains carried interest, when in fact it's just earnings on their skill and profits like most other workers. But they get a benefit. Real estate developers, the same thing. Mm. If we simply taxed income more uniformly, rather than giving special breaks to certain uh, well, you know, financially well-off sectors, we'd do much better in terms of being able to 
manage our public costs without going into terrible debts. Again, it's the rich saying, hey, don't touch my money, gets from someone else. That kind of selfishness is defeating for, for all society. And frankly, if you have rich people who don't want to pay taxes and they take that attitude from California to Texas with them, then Texas is going to run into trouble at some point also. You know, you, you just need a society where people who succeed say, I want to invest in success for future generations and for the future of the country. I don't want to just, uh, sp you know, spend it till my last check bounces and take it all with me uh, to the grave. Uh, that kind of spend it all on me, 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 doesn't sustain any large complex society for very long. It undermines it. What is the impediment to our making more or less instantaneous progress on this front? I mean, when you, when you cite <laughs> specific examples like the fact that Apple, you know, the most valuable, I believe it's the most valuable corporation on earth right now, mm -hmm. is being run essentially from a P.O. box in Ireland because it, it doesn't want to pay U.S. corporate taxes. I mean, that, that is a, an example of tax evasion so transparent and obscene that it seems like a, a single New York Times article about it should be enough to accomplish a change in policy, right? And you, and you take someone like you know, Warren Buffett saying, you know, I don't see why I pay a lower tax rate than my secretary does, right? That doesn't make any sense to me. You know, come tax me more. Right. Why wasn't that single utterance sufficient to produce some kind of reckoning here? Because it, it makes absolutely no sense. I mean, and what you just said about capital gains in California, yes, there's a lot of capital gains in California to be taxed. But as you just pointed out, the tax rate for capital gains is exactly what explains Warren Buffett's you know, mystification. You know, why, why is he taxed? at a, a small fraction of what uh, you know, ordinary income is taxed at. What is actually blocking us on these points? Well, there are two things. Very you know, practically, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett are great philanthropists, and they tried to organize other billionaires into a society of philanthropists where they would compete with each other in philanthropic giving rather than wealth accumulation. But this comes back to our earlier point that this does sidestep the tax code. This is just making a virtue degree, yes. of, yeah, of, of being yes, a philanthropist. Yes, but it, it more or less says, if you're going to be a philanthropist and give much of your wealth to causes you believe in, you don't have to worry about the tax code taking it away from you because you've made the disposition yourself. Right. But the thing is, they couldn't get as many billionaires as they had hoped to sign on for the philanthropic community. Uh, they just found that most people had adopted a kind of Ayn Rand philosophy that says, I earned it, it's mine. You inferior people who may envy me, keep your hands off what I have earned. And that attitude somehow becomes the new religion. In, instead of following Jesus, they follow Ayn Rand and make a virtue out of the uh, accumulation and display of private wealth. Now, as I say, we, we, we've been here before. Thorstein Veblen wrote a whole book on how conspicuous consumption and the display of luxury had become part of the American lifestyle and uh, had some good as well as bad aspects. But like anything else, if it becomes too extreme, if it goes to the point, I mean, I don't mind if people go to a charity ball and they wear expensive jewelry 
and show off to each other while doing something good. Of course, people have egos and they want to do that. But if it comes to the point where they say, society has no right to tax what I have earned because I did it myself and I'm not going to let it be, as uh, you know, Mitt Romney was said to have said, you know, I'm a maker. I'm not going to let society take what I've earned and give it to people who are just takers. Well, if you divide the world that way, the takers are going to come after you <laughs> because they're going to say, wait a minute, you know, we're the ones who are doing a lot of the labor. We're the ones who are working in the shadow of your plants or the ones who are being put out of jobs. If you slice up and sell off pieces of our company, you know, we're human beings too. We deserve dignity and respect and we deserve to be rewarded for our work. And if you just treat us as takers, then, you know, to hell with you and everyone else. And uh, we're going to get a dictator who will destroy everybody, but at least we'll all go down together and then you'll be equal to us again. That's the impetus behind revolutions throughout history. People have to see their self-interest. Look, it, yeah. it, it's hard because if you make a virtue out of greed, greed is good. Greed is what propels America. Greed is what should be rewarded. And you make that your virtue, you're actually turning your back on the lessons of history, hmm. looking at how societies rise and fall. You have to say a certain amount of inequality and a certain amount of greed that motivates people to work hard and to sacrifice today in order to have more tomorrow is healthy. That's good. We all need to learn to defer gratification. We all need to learn that hard work can be rewarded and that things don't just come to people out of the blue. You have to earn them. Those are good lessons. But that doesn't mean that once you have achieved exceptional success, you then are somehow given a green card that said, oh, you're now free of any kind of social obligation. The community no longer uh, is connected with you or you with it. Uh, and you can pretend as if you live on a spaceship and throw your trash and your waste wherever you want. That is how societies from Eastern Ireland to ancient Rome to uh, France under Louis XVI got very rich and then nonetheless had revolutions that destroyed them. Let me say that part of my research on revolutions was motivated by asking the question, why do societies that were so rich and successful, that were the most powerful societies of their day, go through revolution and crisis mm -hmm. and collapse? Because it seemed like they had everything going for them. And it turns out that the common dynamic is governments become dysfunctional, Politics becomes polarized, elites become selfish, and the population no longer has faith that the system offers anything to them. And that's where America has been headed for the last few decades. Yeah, but I mean, by those signs and portents, I would say we're one minute to midnight in this society. Because Well, we're not one minute to midnight. We're having crowds assault the Capitol and seek to hang the vice president. I mean, <laughs> you know, that, that's five seconds from midnight. If yeah. they'd broken in and succeeded, what would we be saying today? Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. I mean, I feel like I'm in some ways the, the, the wrong person to have this conversation or the right one. I mean, I, I don't actually know. I feel like I'm a kind of canary in the coal mine here because there, there are certain aspects of the psychology of this and what I witness in among people I know and, and, you know, elsewhere, you know, a couple of nodes away in my 
my network, you know, among friends of friends. Some of this is really understandable to me, and it just seems like it's, you know, the work of perverse incentives, and it's a system failure. It's not actually a failure of the of the ethics or or psychology of of the individual participants. But then there are other aspects to this where I, I just can't understand what people are thinking. Where it's just I have no theory of mind for you know what they're up to, and it's mystifying. So I'll just give you two places to you know take the temperature of this. So on the on the rational part, it makes total sense for an individual, in my view, to want to pay as little in taxes as they legally can. Right, so it's like when it comes time to figure out, you know, how large the check needs to be that you're going to cut to the government, you want to take all the deductions that you're entitled to take, and and you, if you're well off, you'll hire someone to help you play that game as uh, rigorously as possible, and that just seems like like everyone is going to do that, no matter what they think their obligations are to the rest of society. And so, you know, I'm someone who who does that, but also I think the rate of taxes should be raised on me and people like me, a la Warren Buffett, right? Like Warren Buffett, I'm sure, isn't paying more in taxes than he needs to pay, but he is right to point out that it makes no sense that his tax, his effective tax rate is as low as it is. That's sort of the rational part. The irrational part is, you know, more to the point of uh, that you were just raising, that you have all of these wealthy people, a whole culture of wealthy people who are working fairly hard to insulate themselves from the slow or not-so-slow degradation of their society. And, you know, they'll, they'll fly private when they get sufficiently wealthy, and thereafter won't have to notice how demeaning the process of, of normal air travel has become. For reasons of you know failing infrastructure and assets and or and just you know other complications like our paranoia about terrorism, we've been taking off our shoes for twenty years at this point. It's easy to see how personally they they they're trying to insulate themselves from the common experience of things unraveling. But worse, and and this is the part that I just I don't understand. I continually meet people who are insulated enough. That they seem to think they have, no, they no longer have skin in the game. It's just that they don't think that a rising crime rate or rising rates of homelessness in their own city is degrading their own quality of life. They're sufficiently avoiding a confrontation with how unlivable cities have become that they feel like the the, the emergency hasn't reached them, and the consequences of political instability haven't reached them. So they're just sort of kind of blithely going about their business, all the while, you know, people are shopping for pitchforks. Uh, and, you know, the, the level of dysfunction in our society by every measure is increasing. That part I really just don't understand. And sure. yet it's, it seems to be, you know, what happened, you know, you know, prior to the, I mean, as you point out, there are historical reference here. We know, we know how this works out for, you know, the Marie Antoinettes of the world. <laughs> What can we do here to anchor the so-called elites to some new norms here? I mean, it just seems like we we need to have a collective epiphany 
And we have a massive coordination problem to solve here, where we all sort of get on the same page rather quickly and realize that we have a stake, all of us have a stake in a society that functions, even if you know, the days of us taking a public bus are, are long behind us. Leadership matters in pointing the direction and signaling virtue. And so I hope the leadership will play a role in that collective action problem. But let me say, I'm, I'm sympathetic. Let's say I'm a successful software entrepreneur, designer, and it bothers me that when I go through San Francisco, there's feces on the sidewalk, there are homeless encampments. It's terrible. But I have the resources to have a choice. I can avoid all that by working in a 25th story office where I don't have to look out on it and arranging private transport to a nice suburban home or a more secure neighborhood. And I think about, yeah, that's costly for me, but solving the problem of homelessness is a really complex, difficult problem. I can't do anything about it by myself. I don't trust the government to do anything about it. So I really have no choice except to pay what it costs to make my life more secure and free of having to deal with that blight. Now, then the government comes along and says, hey, I'd like you to contribute some more in taxes so we can provide more shelters and get these people off the street and maybe provide some uh, job training and homeless vouchers and medication for people who have psychiatric issues. And, and that will help solve this problem. Well, at that point, you say, now, I can't afford to pay higher taxes because I've invested so much in getting a home in an expensive area and my uh, commuting pattern and uh, keeping up appearances for my office and so on. So you kind of lock yourself into that. And you're right. Then it becomes a big collective action problem to say, how do we get people to take a step in the direction of committing more to the public welfare? And the answer is, first, you have to demonstrate that it can be done. And I think the first step is not to worry about taxes and redistribution. The first step is to do some things like about COVID and like unemployment uh, insurance, things like the Big Cares Act that we did that actually use borrowed money, but show that government can be a savior, can make people's lives better and deserve some trust. Once you've established that, then maybe people will tolerate a bit more incremental taxation in order to achieve public goals. But as you say, if they believe that private spending on themselves is going to be much more effective than public spending to achieve that same outcome, you know what direction they're going to take. Mm. Now, that said, the tax system as it is, is such a mess. You know, you think about it, you say, well, I want to do everything legally to reduce my tax burden. I have that right. And of course you do. And we all have that right. And we all have that interest. Some of us push it even further. Like if you're Donald Trump and you evaluate the uh, worth of your businesses at one level for paying taxes on the property, and then you inflate it to another level to justify borrowing against it. So you can continue to kind of push further and further to the edge. And the richer you are, the more likely you are to probe the bounds of, of where that goes. But wouldn't it be nice if you didn't have to spend all that time and effort on that? Most people, for example, are not aware that the federal 
uptake of national income for all kinds of federal taxes has been remarkably stable at 18 to 21 percent since the 1980s. The composition of that has changed, but at the end of the day, the federal government takes in from income tax, corporate tax, other taxes, somewhere, give or take 20 percent, plus or minus 2 percent, mm. pretty much regardless. And you say, but how can that be? Uh, you know, my marginal tax rate is 33 percent. Yes, but a lot of other people pay little or no taxes because they make less than 30000 a year. And you say, well, aren't corporate taxes 35%? And you say, well, yes, but it turns out the effective corporate tax rate, even before the Trump reductions, was around 23 25% because of all the deductions and allowances that are built into the corporate tax system. So what if we did, like some countries have done, say, forget all this. Let's just have a 20% flat tax on all income. Everybody pays 20% on whatever you earn, however you earn it. Federal government would take in the same amount. Hmm. You wouldn't have to worry about, well, do I take this deduction? Do I buy a used car, new car because of the taxes? Do I hire more or less people? You know, the tax calculations, all of that would become irrelevant. 20% is not unreasonable for anyone, for most people, right? Now, we're not going to be able to go from where we are now to there in one fell swoop. But we can incrementally start to make taxes more uniform and bring down the high end, get rid of the exemptions, the losses, the tricks, and so on, and get to a system that brings in about the same amount of revenue, but with a lot less of that anxiety on your conscience, a lot less strain, a lot less work for tax lawyers, a lot more money available to be put into things that are useful. So mm. we can move in that direction. If that's our target, I think people will go there. That's interesting. Yeah, let's, let's talk about specific remedies for our situation here and, and, and the reasons uh, pro and con. What do you think about a wealth tax, whether it's a an ongoing one of the sort that uh, I believe Elizabeth Warren proposed, or a, a one-time kind of emergency response to, let's say, our, our current situation with the pandemic. Do you pay property taxes? Yes. So you pay a wealth tax already. Most Americans already pay a wealth tax through a property tax. So it's not a bizarre, radical idea. As far as a wealth tax goes, I do think people who hold large amounts of wealth that is relatively liquid and easy to assess, that is wealth that they're holding in bonds, wealth that they're holding in mm. uh, stock market equities, corporate bonds, instruments of wealth that are relatively easy to assess. What I would say is if you have wealth of over, maybe over 50 million, maybe over $100 million, and if your income on that wealth is 5% or more of that wealth, then it's reasonable to pay either a wealth tax or an income tax of 20% on that profit, whichever is less. All that is to say is people who have large amounts of wealth shouldn't be able to get away with not paying any tax on it any more than you and I who own homes can mm. get away without paying an annual property tax on our home. Now, I don't think it's worth hunting down everyone's wealth of all kinds. If you own stock in your own company, it's privately held, 
I don't think you should have to pay tax on that. If you're retired, if you're over 65 or over 75 and no longer gaining a, a regular income, and you're living off your assets, I don't think you should have to pay a wealth tax on that because that's providing the majority of your support. So I think you know, there, there are issues with that. I'm, I'm not in favor of it. Uh, I could see how a moderate wealth tax would be part of a broader system of fair taxation. But my real interest in a wealth tax would be tax on inheritance, because I think the founding fathers of this country did not want to create an aristocracy. They did not want to see private fortunes accumulate and grow across generations in a way that would create people who felt that their families had an entitlement to live in a certain way beyond that of their fellows. So I think inheritance taxes going back to what they were before, giving people an option, of course. You can donate your money to your favorite charitable cause so you can dispose of it, Mm. but you cannot simply give your children all that you have earned through your lifetime because in a democracy, they should have to earn it themselves. Yeah, I mean, you want to you know, start them out with a million dollars or $10 million, somewhere in there, fine. But um, if you're a billionaire, you should be giving most of that fortune away over your lifetime, as Bill Gates has promised to do and Warren and Buffett. And you know, their children should make their own contributions. They can start, as I say, you know, with a few million, and that's a huge advantage as it is. But the, the great fortune itself should not be allowed to grow unimpeded over generations. So having an inheritance tax rather than a wealth tax, I think, makes more social sense. Mm. What, what if privately held corporations gave some amount of equity away to the government? So that the success of the when you see the stratospheric success of a company like Apple, on some level that is guaranteed to be to represent the success of the country as well. Well, you would think that having a company like Apple headquartered with its gorgeous campus on the peninsula would somehow benefit that community. But it really hasn't. They, you know, got a deal to avoid paying a lot of the property taxes to locate there. And, hmm. you know, parts of Palo Alto remain uh, relatively low income. It's a study in contrasts. Now, to some degree, that's what the private market does. But the idea behind a democracy like America is that we would allow the private market to make a lot of decisions because, and I agree with this completely, the market and the price mechanism is the most efficient way to distribute incentives and rewards for most enterprises. But once the market has kind of done its job, if imbalances start to accumulate, then it's the job of government in protecting democracy to do what's necessary to provide dignity, quality of life, to all of its citizens. And that means a certain degree of redistribution of you know, extreme accumulations of wealth so that they don't become corrosive. You know, it's a, anyone who manages their own life knows that there's only so much they can do. They need to call occasionally on a doctor or an accountant or a plumber to help them with things that come up. And I kind of view a society the same way that, you know, you want people to run their own lives and the market to make most decisions. But when you see dysfunctions piling up, if there's the equivalent of 
of a leaky pipe or people are getting sick, then you need government to come in, uh, tax where those who have surplus and can afford it, and distribute the services to everyone who needs it. Uh, in this case, obviously, you know, we're, we're going to need to distribute vaccines to everyone and pay the medical workers who do that, pay the overtime that they deserve to do that. And we're a wealthy society. I mean, we have more wealth than ever. We shouldn't find ourselves, oh, well, you know, we can't administer vaccine on weekends because uh, governments don't have the money to pay overtime to medical workers. Mm. That is madness, but that's where we are if you take the logic of, well, you know, starve the government, it's no good, to extremes. I mean, the government is not a foreign parasite, even though some people think it is. <laughs> government is something that we invented to provide security and health and education and progress for our lives. It's up to us to make government work, for sure. You can't let it run wild. But properly managed, there are tasks that the market cannot do that government must do. Even Adam Smith recognized that. And so we need to compromise, as I mentioned in the beginning, you know, having factions that say, oh, government can do everything or government can't do anything, that's hopeless. We need to compromise and say, look, let's find some things that government works well at or that seem to be necessary. Or if you see an obvious problem that the private market hasn't solved, let's try and solve it. Find things that work. We don't have to argue ideology forever. Just find things that need to be done and figure out how to do them so they work. Well, one thing the government is rather good at, as you pointed out earlier, is, is simply cutting checks to people when it wants to, as in Social Security. And this has been an, an argument for universal basic income, that this is something that to utilize the market forces where they work uh, and allow people to just spend money as they, they see fit and give the government really no other role but to provide that money. What's your feeling about UBI? I'm in favor of universal basic income if it is coupled to universal service. That is, if um, people are required to do one year or two years of some type of public service, it can be military service, it can be community service, it can be service overseas, Peace Corps-like things, or it can be domestic AmeriCorps-like things. It can be, mm. you know, forest conservation or providing medical services or running food banks. But some things that the market doesn't do that need to be done, I think there's a huge benefit. I know Susan Rice, the new domestic policy, SARS, is, is interested in this. Public service does so many things, aside from doing things that need to be done, it brings people together from all over the country when they're young to get to know each other, to share experiences and ideas, and to simply recognize that wherever we come from, we can work together as Americans. So that is, is terrifically valuable. And if we can reward people for doing that service by saying, and if you do one year or two years of service, you will get twenty-five dollars or $50,000 deposited in your bank account when you reach age 25. I think that's quite reasonable. You know, we did it essentially with the GI Bill. We said everybody who defended their country uh, is entitled to a college education. And that was a huge success for America. So bringing back something like that, I think it'd be terrific. Mm. But it sounds like you are skeptical of uh, a UBI that is of the sort that 
you know, Andrew Yang has been speaking about of late, just give people a thousand dollars a month, everyone at any level of of wealth, because that's the most efficient way to to reboot the economy and let people decide what what they actually need money for. That type of kind of helicopter money as a one-time emergency measure during a massive employment crisis can be justified as an emergency measure, but it does not have good incentive properties as a long-term policy. Mm. I mean, the, the counter-argument there is that if you're, if you're talking about you know, $1,000 a month, you know, $12,000 a year, you're not talking about giving people so much money that they're just going to retire because they, they're not, they're, they can no longer be incentivized to, to work. But you're just giving them, you're, you're setting the floor at a higher level than, than zero. I don't think that amount of money is well spent in that way. If you give people a thousand a month, it's not enough for them to invest in a home. It's not enough for them to start a business. It's not enough for them to get a college or vocational education. Mm. It's enough for them to get a uh, minimum wage job and live a little better off it. And that's not what we want to incentivize. I would rather have people do the universal service and then get a significant pot of money when Mm. they are mature enough to know what to do with it and give them an opportunity. They can invest that money in themselves, in in their education, in a business. Uh, If they need to, they can buy a food truck and start a a restaurant. But, you know, if if someone gives you $25,000 and says, this is a chance for you to make something of your life, some people will waste it. But more people will use it smartly, and uh, if they're not entrepreneurs themselves, you know, they'll invest or they'll buy property or they'll do something because they know, you know, this is their chance to accumulate value. And so I think the number of people who will squander it will be small. If you give people $1,000 a month, mm. a lot of that will be squandered because it's hard to see any long-term gains from investing that kind of flow. Mm. Okay, so... Jack, finally, what, what are your expectations going forward over the next few years in the U.S.? I mean, you, you've thought a lot about how close we have come to some kind of tipping point of, of revolution. Are you optimistic about um, what uh, things look like under Biden, or are you half expecting that we'll discover that the assault on the Capitol was just the first volley in, a, in an ongoing insurgency that we now need to deal with and we're we're now tipped into something that really is a ghastly derangement of our of our history at least viewed from what we had every right to expect some years ago. Well, I like to say that I don't have a crystal ball, I have a barometer. Hmm. That is I can look at the pressure in the system and see if the pressure is rising or falling, if it's at a high level or a low level. Right now it's at a high level and it's been rising for decades. It's at a level that is higher, and I said this last fall, higher than it's been since the 19th century. And so we have seen things that we would not have expected to see since the 19th century. The assault on the Capitol, inauguration in a Washington that is full to the teeth of armed federal troops, people talking about wanting to secede, things that we really haven't uh, seen or didn't. You know, six months ago, I think most people would have said, no, that's impossible. You're not going to see an armed mob attack the Capitol. You're not going to have the entire Capitol shut down with more troops than we have in Afghanistan and Iraq just for the inauguration. This is America. 
Well, yes, it's America as it is today. So we have to admit that our problems have become severe. Now, that can be cathartic. It can be like FDR in the 1930s when he said, or, you know, someone asked him, you know, if you solve these problems, will you be a great president? And his response was, if I don't, I may be the last. Or maybe that was, I can't remember that, whether that was Roosevelt or Truman, hmm. but a president who came, you know, in a time of crisis. So the fact that Biden has come into office at a time of great unemployment, great epidemic mortality, a decline in U.S. standing around the world, a decline in the affordability of education, a crisis of confidence in government. These are massive challenges, and it may be an opportunity to get enough support to say, look, the time for fighting for ideological wars is past. No more posturing, guys. Let's focus on truth, focus on facts. Let's save the planet. Let's save our society. Let's go big. And if he can do that, if he can get vaccinations to stop this pandemic, if he can get money to get people back to work. You know, I'm not worried about the stock market falling because I'd be perfectly fine if corporations paid a little more, the stock market went down, but most Americans went back to jobs that paid more. In the 60s, the stock market didn't go great, but it was a great time for working men and women. Minorities, not so much, of course, that was a different problem. But if you look at the percentage of GDP that went to labor in the 50s and 60s, it was about twice what it is today. Now, mm. so much goes into finance corporations that, of course, the stock market benefits, but that's no longer the best measure of quality of life in the country. So let's go big on quality of life for Americans, rebuild neighborhoods, rebuild lives. And if he can do that, then when they talk about fiscal responsibility, it becomes, okay, let's talk about fiscal responsibility. Let's look who's paying how much in taxes. And let's not hear that people who earn money don't have to pay taxes because they're the ones who make it. Let's say everyone has a job to do, and that is to pay for what the country needs to be healthy. And people paying 10 or 15% when they make hundreds of millions a year offends against common sense and decency. So let's deal with that. And then we'll talk about fiscal responsibility. So I think there's a great opportunity to turn things around, restore faith in government. And I'm only optimistic because we did it in the 30s, although, to be honest, it took far too long. It took many, many years, and we stumbled into a world war in order to get out of the Depression. Mm -hmm. hope, that, hope to God that doesn't happen again. And, you know, we turned things around. Maybe a better example was under the first Roosevelt, where we got a trust buster. And we started saying, you know, these concentrations of wealth are not healthy for the country. And we need to, you know, conserve our natural resources. Uh, Roosevelt built up the national park system. He uh, broke up the huge concentrations of wealth. And he made America so strong that uh, after World War I, we emerged as one of the leading countries in the world. So America can repair itself if we think big and take on the big challenges. Now, there's a good chance that won't happen. You're right. There's a good chance selfishness will prevail. Biden will get blocked from doing anything important. Government will go through another four years of dysfunction. Either Trump or someone like him will spend the next four years looking for megaphones to complain about how government is terrible and elites neglect America and everyone's a traitor who's not on his or her side. And then we are 
back in the same place we are today, maybe a little worse. The election of 2022 and 2024 become disasters with uh, threats of rigged elections and complaints and massive protests again. And the world looks at America and says, uh, that poor country, it had its day, no longer important. Maybe China is the model that we need. So I see those both as plausible scenarios, and a lot depends on how much of a change in direction we can make really in the next 18 months. Mm. So this is a crucial time. Mm. Well, fascinating and obviously all too consequential. Thank you for your time, Jack. It's really been a great conversation and an education. Well, thanks for the opportunity. As I say, maybe we'll have reached some in the audience who will take responsibility. Uh, it's what I try to do every day, and I think that's what we want to encourage. Just take responsibility for the people around you, for your community, and you actually get good feelings about that. It'll work out. 